again in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at Acts 5, verses 17 to 32. Acts 5, 17 to 32. Or 42, excuse me. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day, 
in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, I love the manifest grace in the life of the apostles and in that early church. Lord, it brings great joy just to see their faithfulness, their boldness, their courage. But Lord, I don't want to just admire them. I want to be like them. I want to have a church of men and women, of children, who are like this church. Bold, sacrificial, loving. And Lord, that's why we've come. We don't want to just hear the word. We want to apply the word. We want to live according to the word, but we need great grace. We know that mere learning will not result in love, will not result in Christian living. Lord, we need you to work through us. Help us to see clearly, first of all, what your word means, and then clearly see what we individually need to do differently in light of what you you teach us. But Lord, we would think and love and act like you. And so we pray that you would stir us up, even through the example of your apostles. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. After the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, which we looked at last week, the text says the impact of their deaths was that great fear came upon the entire church and over all who heard these things. Acts 5.11. And this was a good thing, that the people would fear God. Their fear of God would, inc- would be increased. And I say it's a good thing because there's a lot of people who are really confused about this idea that we should fear the Lord. And so in fact, some Christians I've even say that now that we're in Christ, we shouldn't fear God at all. But that's not what we see in Scripture. To fear God simply means to live in light of who God really is. Or to take Him seriously. That's what it means to fear God. The fear, in God, uh, uh, the fear of God includes both His love, it includes an understanding of His sovereignty, of His mercy, of his goodness, of his kindness. But it also means that we take seriously his wrath, his anger, his justice, and his holiness. So, for instance, I, I love the Grand Canyon. I think it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. And it, it would be, one of the, I've not taken my family there yet, but I'd love to take my family there to see the Grand Canyon because of its majesty but I wouldn't want my kids to play around the edge of it, you know, run and take jumps, pretending they're going to fall off or try and scare mom and dad. I wouldn't want them to do that because I know how severe the consequences would be if they fell off into the Grand Canyon. Well, likewise, that is the fear of the Lord. We know it's the canyon is real and therefore we take it seriously because of the consequences of not fearing it. And Solomon, the wisest man in the Old Testament, at the, at the beginning of his writings, at the end of his writings, emphasizes the fear of God. He says in Proverbs 1.7 that it's the source of all the wisdom that he shares in Proverbs. And it comes up a ton in the book of Proverbs. He, it, he says the fear of God will lead to knowledge, wisdom, a long life, avoiding evil, riches, honor in life, confidence, 
and even praise. And then he makes this remarkable statement at the very end of Ecclesiastes, possibly the last words that he ever wrote. He says, the end of the matter after all has been heard is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I mean, he basically says this is the secret to life. This is the secret to success. If you just do this, if this is the only thing you do in your life, is you take God seriously, you take his word seriously, and you live in light of that, you will have lived the best life possible. This is is all you need to know. You don't need to read the rest of Ecclesiastes if you get this and you do this. But we're thankful that he does give us all of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes nonetheless. And so it begs the question, well, what does such a life of fearing the Lord actually look like? I mean, does it, does it look like being anxious and nervous about every single thing that we do? Well, I think it's helpful sometimes to have examples. Especially examples of people other than Christ. Because we know he was perfect and didn't struggle with sin like we do. And God gives us such an example in the passage before us. Both a positive example in the apostles who fear God. And in a negative example of the religious leaders who instead fear God. Men. Very simple outline to the text. There's two sections. First of all, we see the rulers opposing the preaching of Christ in verses 17 to 32. And then we see the rulers being warned about their opposition to preaching Christ by the rabbi Gamaliel. And that's in verses 33 to 42. Let's look at that first section, beginning in verse 17. Now, as you recall... In chapter 4, the the apostles already had been brought before the Sanhedrin and they were told to stop preaching Christ. And the apostles boldly responded to that threat that they would not stop preaching because he had commanded them to preach. And so after being threatened again, they were released. And the rulers were hoping that their threats at least would eventually sink in and they would stop. But the opposite actually is the case, because when they go forth from the Sanhedrin in chapter 4, they go to the church and they begin to pray. The whole church actually prays that they would all speak with such boldness. And then God immediately answers their prayer, and the whole church does begin to preach and teach with great boldness. They're going to their friends, their families, their neighbors, and they're telling them the truth about the Christ. And an incredible impact. And so when the high priests and the Sadducees realized their threats fell on deaf ears and the apostles are back in the temple preaching and teaching again, they immediately arrest them. And that's what we see at the beginning of uh, verse 17. And the text notes that their motive is jealousy. That's why they grabbed them. It says they were filled with jealousy. The word is zelu, where we get the word The English word zeal, it means to boil up with passion. It means to have a strong, passionate desire for something. And here what the religious leaders passionately want is they want their commands to be obeyed. They want to, they want people to to hear their commands and to immediately follow them. And they're not used to such obstinacy. I mean, all they asked the apostles is that they would just simply stop preaching Christ. 
You can keep teaching. You can keep gathering. You can keep singing. Just stop preaching in Christ's name. And yet they won't. And it's the religious leaders' jealousy of Jesus that prompts them to finally jail the apostles. And the apostles aren't in jail very long. Because as we read, an angel comes and sets them free. But what's remarkable is what the angel says to them when he releases them. Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Literally, it says all the words of this life. Panta ta renata te zoes tautes. This is the angelic way of describing preaching. Think about that. All the ways he could, that an angel could describe preaching. He says, keep on telling the message of this life. It's speaking to the life that Christ gives through his death and resurrection. Because he died and rose again, we can have absolute confidence. Our sins are forgiven. And one day, even though we have sinned and we will die, we will rise again. And so he says, go tell the people this message that they would know that they could be set free from their sins, even the Sanhedrin. Don't listen to your rulers to stop preaching. Obey your king who commanded you to preach. And so, verse 21, upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, I... I want us to note the the obedience of the disciples here. They immediately do what they are told. They they obey right away, all the way, and they do so with a joyful heart. That's how we instruct our children to obey. That's what obedience looked like. It's not with grumbling. It's not when I get around, do it. It's right away, all the way, and do it with joy. Because it's been a command given to you. And even though... They know there's great risk that there's going to, they're going to be severely punished. If they don't obey their rulers, they have a greater fear of God than they do of the loss that will, will, they will incur through disobeying the rulers. They're submissive to a greater authority. Again, I want to emphasize that because it shows they're not rebellious. The reason they don't obey their rulers is because they have a higher authority. And they're always going to obey that higher authority when a lesser authority tells them to disobey. So it's not training rebellion, but rather greater devotion. And the scene is actually somewhat humorous because the text notes that all of the great leaders, all the, the who's who of Israel was gathered together at this meeting. Right? They, they all come together, the high priest, his associates, uh, the whole Sanhedrin, even the Senate is there. So everybody who's anybody in Israel, and they've all gathered to hear judgment finally get passed on these apostles. And when they show up, the apostles can't be found. I mean, it, it, it's, again, it's humorous. It's almost like you know, planning a surprise party for somebody. And you notify the, the friends and the neighbors, the school kids, everybody they know, aunts, uncles, they come out of town. Everybody's gathered to say happy birthday and, and surprise the birthday girl, and she never shows up. And so everybody's staring at themselves like, why are we here? 
That's what's happened until somebody runs in and says, the people that you jailed, they're actually preaching again. And so it says the the temple guard and the chief priests go and gather them back. But it's important to note how they gather them. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. And the implication here is that the, the people weren't there. They would have taken them back by violence. They didn't fear the violent handling of the, the apostles. They weren't afraid of God. The only thing that caused them to be gentle with the apostles when they brought them back to jail was their fear of men. And so you see this contrast. The apostles who have such fear of God, they're willing to disobey their rulers at great cost. And then you have these rulers who have such a great fear of people, they're willing to disobey God when all the evidence suggests that God is behind them. That is behind the apostles. Notice their words. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Literally what it says there is we ordered you with an order. It's emphatic. We gave you an order. We expect it to be obeyed. But instead you have filled Jerusalem. You've done the, the opposite of what we tell you to do. And then they say remarkably... You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And I say that's remarkable because this man's blood was on this very group of people. They could have conducted a kangaroo court in order to have him tried and convicted. And they broke 18 Jewish laws to do so. No evidence was ever given for any crime despite bringing in false witnesses. Even Pilate recognized this and he tried to have Jesus released. And when he tried to have them release, the Sanhedrin stirred up the crowds, the high priests and his associates stirred up the crowds to yell, crucify him, crucify him, though they knew he had done absolutely nothing wrong. I mean, this man's blood was fully on the hands of the Sanhedrin, and they knew it. But rather than fearing God's wrath, wrath upon them for killing his innocent son, they are more afraid of the people. Than of God. And notice they can't even bring themselves to say the name Jesus in their accusation. Instead, they simply say this name or this man. And the practice of avoiding saying Jesus' name was taken up in the Talmud because of this. If you read the Talmud, it never uses Jesus' name. Instead, it simply refers to him as Poloni, which means so and so in Hebrew. You might recall in the book of Ruth, the other kinsman redeemer that chose not to redeem Ruth from her circumstances wasn't, didn't get a name. All the other characters in the book are named, but not him. He's just called Honey Poloni, which means Mr. So-and-so, because he's such a disgrace, we're not even going to name him. He's forgotten. Well, that's how they look at Jesus. It's just Mr. So-and-so. And the apostles' response to these rulers in the is the main point of this passage. Look at verse 29. Central point. The apostle 
Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And it shows that the apostles are fully willing to submit to their rulers. But their ultimate loyalty is to God. And he's commanded them to bear witness to Christ and to his word. And four things I think are deserving of our closer attention in this passage in their response. First of all, the motivation behind their response is clearly obedience. Notice how Peter highlights obedience both in verse 49, sorry, 29, and then in verse 32. All right, so he's, he's emphasizing obedience uh, both at the beginning and the end of his response. And so it shows that, again, they're not rebelling, but they're seeking to obey. And in fact, their obedience is so devout, they're willing to give up their rights. They're willing to be unjustly treated. And even lay down their lives if necessary in order to obey. So they're obey. This is all about real obedience, obedience to the extreme, not disobedience. And I emphasize that because in our culture, we want to suggest that, no, this passage gives us freedom to do whatever we want whenever we think our rights are being violated. And that is not what this passage is teaching. That would be a gross, it would be the opposite of what this passage is teaching. This is teaching extreme obedience to our king. And even the word they use here for obedience is rare. It's patharkane, which refers to obedience to which one owes an authority. You could hear the word arcane in that, patharkane, obedience to an authority. Arcane means authority. And it only occurs four times in the New Testament. A few times in the book of Acts and then Titus 3.1. And in every, every case, every time it's used, it refers to obedience that's expected to an authority. Whether it's God or magistrates. And it's, it's helpful also to consider that the same person who said, we will obey God and not men, is also the same man who wrote, in his epistle to his followers in 1 Peter chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake. Right, This is for the Lord's sake. Because you obey your God, be subject for his sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governor as is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And he goes on even speaking to slaves. He says, slaves, be subject Subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but to the unjust ones. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Are you see what he's concerned about? He's not concerned that things won't go our way or that life will get hard or it might hurt or you might suffer loss. He's concerned that we would disobey or dishonor God. That's what drives our behavior. That's what drives our decision making. Will my choice honor or dishonor Christ? And he says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? You deserve it. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is what God delights in. This is what stirs up God's affection. This is what brings a smile to his face. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So the motivation behind their response is obedience, not disobedience. Secondly, 
Look at the Trinitarian nature of their response. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, and he, Jesus, is the one whom God exalted to his right hand. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. And this isn't just a tip of a hat to uh, Trinitarian theology, though it does support the, the reality that God is triune. But the point of Peter even saying this is he's saying all three are God. And no, whether it's the Holy Spirit or Jesus or God the Father, if either one of them, either one of those persons tell us to obey them, we are going to obey rather than man. Because God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one God. They're our God. Thirdly, the central person in the response note is Jesus. He says he's the one God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior. Again, the reason they're on trial, the reason all these men are enraged at them, angry at them, is because they're preaching Christ. And so what do they do when they're called into court? They preach Christ to them again. And notice, notice what they emphasize. He is your prince. He's your savior. He's been raised from the dead. He's been seated at the right hand of God. And then notice the central message. They they don't only preach Christ, they preach Christ's work. He did this to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness. They're saying, you you can be forgiven for all that you did, even though Christ knows he was crucified because of you. He is willing to forgive all of your crimes against him. Now and forever and to to grant you repentance and to, and to call you to be one of his children and to sit with him on his glorious throne when he comes again. Right now, they, they, they offer full amnesty to these Jewish rulers if they would simply trust Christ. So how do these rulers respond to this offer? Well, we see that in the next section when they're advised to stop opposing Christ. Look at verse 33. It says, but when they heard this, this offer of forgiveness, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Despite the amazing good news that's just been laid at their feet, instead of rejoicing, they're enraged and want to kill the messengers. And this is the result of powerful preaching. Right? When the Holy Spirit's at work and he's cutting people to the heart, sometimes the response is not going to be joy, but rather hardening. Right? The same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. And that's what we see here. If a person doesn't seek to obey what they hear from God's word, if they're just wanting to be affirmed in their own desires and passions, but they're not really seeking to obey, they just want to, or they just want to come and learn more about God so they can impress their family members with how much they know, or they just want to be a good example to their kids, but they're not actually intending on obeying what they hear, the response is not positive, it's highly negative. Instead of the word of God being a blessing, it actually becomes a curse. In fact, Jesus said this himself in Matthew 7 at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And the Jew, Jewish leaders are so opposed to Christ and his words, they're enraged and they want to kill Christ. They killed Christ already and now they want to kill his followers. And the disciples probably would have perished at this point. Probably the whole church. Had not Gamaliel stood up and offered his counsel. And he was a, he was a famous Jewish rabbi. He happened to actually be the teacher of the Apostle Paul. He was known as Saul at this time. We know Gamaliel was his teacher because of Acts 22.3. And in all likelihood, Saul was probably here at this meeting, hearing the gospel preached, because he's going to come up again in a couple chapters when Stephen is stoned, and he's the one overseeing the stoning. And so it's helpful to recognize, even though Gamaliel speaks up, in a sense, for the apostles, he's not a fan of Jesus. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he probably was at the first meeting when Jesus was condemned in the middle of the night. Gamaliel was not only a member of the Sanhedrin, he actually served as president of the Sanhedrin during the reigns of the Roman emperors, Tiberius, uh, Caligula, as well as Claudius. And in fact, the learning of Gamaliel was so imminent uh, and his influence was so great that he is only one of seven Jewish rabbis to receive the honorific title of Rabban. And the Talmud even says that since Rabban Gamaliel died, the glory of the law has ceased. That's an amazing statement. So he's incredibly revered even to this day within Judaism. And his counsel is very straightforward. He cites the history of two other upstarts whose revolutions failed, namely Thutis and Judas. Uh, Judas, the Galilean, was supposedly the man who had actually founded the Zealots, which was uh, the group that Simon the Zealot, one of the apostles, was a part of. And he left it to follow Christ. They were an extreme revolutionary movement that wanted to throw off Roman rule and establish Jewish autonomy. So he's citing another rebel that didn't mind disobeying authorities and causing a rebellion. He says, you know, if they're like this guy, it's not going to work. And based upon the failure of these movements, Gamaliel suggests, if, if it is manufactured by just some hot-headed, passionate, romantic leaders, it's going to soon fizzle out. And so there's no need to oppose it. But on the other hand, if it is indeed of God they would in fact be found to be opposing God, which is never a good thing. In fact, he says you would be literally God fighters, fighters of God, Theomachoi. And again, this is a somewhat surprising admission because all the evidence suggests they are fighting against God. All the multiple miracles the testimonies of multiple men, the consistency of the testimonies, even under threat, and the lack of sin by these 
followers, despite all of the threats, despite all the opposition, all of this suggests that God is behind this movement. But they're not looking at the evidence. They're just following their heart. Or their rage. And so even though all of these things suggest God's behind it, and even though that's true, it's surprising to hear Gamaliel say this, because Gamaliel himself is not a fan of Jesus or his followers. But Gamaliel's advice also exposes the real issue. The religious leaders are enemies of God. Because, again, they have a greater fear of men than of God. Right? That's, that's what his counsel tells them. You, need, you should be concerned with fighting God, but you're not. You're just concerned with what the people are going to think. And Jesus diagnosed that this was their problem back in John chapter 5. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Your God is your glory. And as long as your glory, your desires, your passions is what's going to drive you rather than obeying God, then you're going to disobey him and you're going to be found to be fighting against God, even in your supposed righteousness. And now the text says they decided to take up Gamaliel's advice, but only to a limited extent. Because before releasing them and ordering them again to stop preaching Christ, notice what they do. They still had the apostles flogged. Now flogging, another word for it is scourging, was not a light punishment. It was attempted to be portrayed in the Passion of the Christ when he was flogged. A whip made of several strips of leather was used. Often bones or pieces of metal was embedded in the leather strips, so when they were whipped, it would rip off pieces of their skin. The victim was stripped to the waist and tied to a pillar, and the lashes could be administered to the back or to the front. In fact, it was so bad that citizens of the Roman Empire could never be flogged unless they had been sentenced first and condemned. And this is why the the magistrates were so afraid when they were going to have Paul, a Roman citizen, flogged and have him beaten. And they heard that he was a Roman citizen. So this 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 was a very serious punishment. And yet notice how they respond. Verse 41, after being flogged. The apostles went out on their way from the presence of the council, feeling sorry for themselves and being determined to find the best legal counsel that would defend them against this unjust punishment. No, it says they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer in his name. Right? That's why they rejoice. Literally, it says, because they were dignified by indignity. They were dignified. They recognized they had been dignified through their indignity. That's what we're called to, brothers and sisters. Shame, loss, pain, suffering, humiliation on account of Christ. They were honored to suffer dishonor. They were exalted. To be abased. 
I mean, it begs the question, well, were they nuts? I mean, don't they know that God-fearing Christians are supposed to feel sorry for themselves and grumble when things don't go their way? That they should demand their legal rights? They should take up arms against an unjust authority who is violating their legal rights? Don't they know that God wants them to be safe and secure and happy? Just live the contented life? Well, that, they would believe that if they were following the American dream, but that's not their God. And that's the point. They fear God. They don't fear the things of this world or the loss of the things of this world. That's why they rejoice. Because they really believe what God says. They, they really believe what Christ said in Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. This is why Peter would later write, 1 Peter four thirteen. but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Peter's speaking from experience. This experience, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Not only do they rejoice, but they keep on preaching. And they were just flogged for it. They rejoice and they keep on preaching every day. Verse 42 in the temple. And from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching, Jesus is the Christ. I mean, these guys are, are like that, I think it's a children's song that was written about the cat that kept coming back. Uh, the man who owned it gave it to someone riding on a hot air balloon, but the cat comes back the next day. He hands it to a man going west on a train. The train ends up derailing, killing everybody inside, but the cat keeps coming back. The very next day, he puts it on a ship sailing across the ocean. There's a big squall that comes up, uh, up and kills everybody on board. The, the boat's destroyed, but the cat survives somehow and comes back the next day. I mean, the disciples are just like this cat. They keep coming back. They're like invasive weeds. They can't stop them. And they continue to preach Christ every day, not just on Sunday mornings, not just on Wednesday evenings, but every day. Which tells you the people themselves hungered more for the teaching of Christ. They couldn't get enough. Every day they're showing up. And every day, without any fear, the apostles are preaching and teaching God's word. Both in public and in private. And they do this knowing what the cost is going to be. It's not just a threat anymore. They've lived it. They've experienced the pain. They've experienced the humiliation. And they keep on doing it every day. The threat of pain and loss isn't a deterrent to them. What is a deterrent is the fear of God. They really believe God is who he says he is. And they take him seriously. Even to their loss. Their temporal loss, I should say. It reminds me of a story 
mentioned by Richard Vermbrandt, who <clears throat> was imprisoned in uh, Romania under communism. He writes this, It was strictly forbidden to preach to the other prisoners, as it is in captive nations today. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, and so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they would beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. We know where that kind of heart comes from. Because we see it here in the Apostles. And he writes a little later, Birnbrand writes later, The following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room. And what seemed an endless beating, after what seemed an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him bloody and bruised, on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked up his battered body, painfully straightened his clothing, and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? And he continued to preach his gospel message. And where does, again, where does such courage and endurance come from in the face of such real threats? We see it in the text. It comes from a deep and abiding fear of God, taking him at his word and living in light of his word. Having a greater fear of God than men. As Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, Father, it it isn't hard to preach this message when not faced with suffering and loss. But the day, I believe, will come when we will probably face great loss on account of seeking to be faithful to you. And I pray that you would instill in us such depth of a fear of you, such a joy and a delight in your majesty, in your glory, Lord, that we would see ourselves as disposable commodities to simply serve you in whatever capacity you bring us to or offer to us. Lord, whether that's to suffer loss and harm or, Lord, to see fruit abound and for people to abound in joy at your word. Lord, we see both in the book of Acts. But we want to be the kind of people that can thrive in both situations and not stumble and fall. So we pray that you'd give us great grace to be such people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.